Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Shane, your bags are packed. Yeah, I have a suitcase with me today. Where are you going? I'm going to Ciudad Mexico, Ooh. which is also known as Mexico City. But that will mean traveling through an airport. Yes, I'm not driving. Two airports. Yes. Well, no, just one. Well, actually, two. No, no, two. The one that from which I depart and the one to which I arrive. Okay, That's so correct. be careful when you're in the airport about people uh, with syringes. Like who want to give me a vaccine? Yeah, <laughs> or people wearing LOL t-shirts. Uh, yeah. I, it's going around these days. Poison-tipped needles. They'll get you. And don't it's let anybody so wipe anything retro. on your face. Yeah. It's so Cold it? War. Yeah, it's very Cold War. It's kind of romantic. So if I'm like, if I see two women coming towards me with LOL t-shirts and they're laughing with big syringes going, ah, <laughs> I should probably run the other way. Yeah. That would be good. Don't, That's don't, just basic off-sec training right there. Don't stay for the joke. Hi, are you the welcoming wagon? Are those margaritas? <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the death without dignity edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal. Hope I die with dignity one day. I'm going to die with my boots on. Yeah, just don't die in an airport <laughs> with, a with, a, with a woman with a syringe. That's the worst, man. That is, that is not the way they you want to They just came go. out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, at least the uncle who he killed with an aircraft, anti-aircraft gun... Now that has panache. Right. Or the dogs, right? <laughs> There's been dogs. This has been, for those who don't know, of course, we're talking about the half-brother? Half-brother. The, the late half-brother of North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, who was killed by two women in a Malaysian airport with poison darts or needles of some kind. Um, can, can, can I just say that to all of our listeners who may have half-brothers that they have problems <laughs> with, this is not an appropriate there way to... There are better ways yeah. to Talk I mean, it out, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, family therapy. Family therapy. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, angry exchanges. I know. do want to know if there's a committee in North Korea, though, that comes up with creative methods of assassinating yeah, unwanted family members. Because you do have the, 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 my favorite one is the killing of the uncle with the anti-aircraft gun. Then I think they fed his parts to dogs rather than allow him to be buried. And they made him watch other people being killed with anti-aircraft guns in advance of his own. So it's, you know, first you get to see it and then you get to do it. Yeah. I thought the dark. British had this a lock on sadism. Dark. Yeah. Yeah. That's no. messed up. Anyway, have anyway, fun in Mexico. Thanks. Bring me back one of those sombreros and a margarita. We'll <laughs> yes, chill out. They're, they're so syringe. famous for it. <laughs> uh, of course, you know my good friends, uh, Ben Wittes, Mark Hoffman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. No Hi. meals for you. Hey. Um, today on the show, first, we're going to talk about President Trump's selection of Army General H.R. McMaster as his national security advisor after a turbulent search. Uh, next, we'll talk about that incident at the airport. Uh, and finally, we're going to look at the what to make of the burgeoning relationship between Bibi Netanyahu and Donald Trump. Um, let's but, start. But, but wait, what? I have a special announcement. Oh, you have first. a special announcement? Yeah. So we got uh, on Friday a wonderful shout out uh, from uh, Mike Pesca, 
uh, uh, of, of Mike the, Pesca of the gist of the gist, who is Great one of Mike one Pesca. of my favorite talkers uh, in any venue, uh, let alone podcasts. Um, but the result of this is that uh, we have a surge of new listeners uh, who, over the weekend, uh, downloaded the last episode. Uh, and so I just wanted to say, uh, you know, to everyone who's listening to Rational Security for the first or maybe the second time, welcome aboard. Hi, uh, guys. Hi. And if you don't give us a five-star review, we will <laughs> hunt you down with an anti-aircraft gun and I feed you to a dog. Uh, we will, we no. will come for you. I, you <laughs> know, guys, I was going to say something like... Thanks for subscribing. We'll try really hard not Except to bore you. Except for Tammy. Except for Tammy. She's going to do that. But the rest Tammy of us. the peacemaker. This is I'm, called I'm just a diplomat you know. here in the crowd. You are. Tammy is our resident Susan's diplomat. Susan's our bad cop. Tammy is our good cop. <laughs> uh, no, in all seriousness, if you like the show, we are totally word of mouth. Uh, we've got no advertising. We've got no sponsorship. Uh, so, Which you will learn soon enough. Yeah, so, so uh, you know. If you like the show, uh, rate us, uh, share us on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, uh, you know we're we're glad to have you guys aboard. Definitely. Uh, all right, so let's get to the big news of the week. Uh, so we're taping this on Tuesday, and on Monday, President Trump announced H.R. McMaster uh, as his national security advisor. So just briefly on uh, General McMaster, I think probably fair to say one of the more celebrated, well-regarded generals of his generation. And, uh, and like Matt is seen as an intellectual right. warrior. Right. He's a PhD. He wrote a, a very well-regarded book on Lyndon Johnson and what he saw as the terrible advice that he was given during the Vietnam War by his generals. Uh, probably the, the two most uh, famous military uh, campaigns he's been involved in. One was the first Gulf War where he led a famous uh, uh, battle in a tank battalion uh, or tank regiment, sorry. Uh, and then uh, also uh, he is responsible for basically helping to take uh, Talafar in Iraq during the second Iraq war from uh, ISIS, uh, from Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which of course became ISIS. So seen as sort of, I think, in the vein of a Petraeus, kind of this, you know, insurgency, counterinsurgency thinker, uh, and a, a obviously still serving in the military. Uh, it's notable that this is a path that others have taken to become chairman of the Joint Chiefs. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about what McMaster might have his eyes on. Um, so doing a little Colin Powell. A little Colin Powell. A little, uh, you know, uh, who else? Who else was, Did anybody else go from National John Negroponte and Poindexter. No, Poindexter was, uh, went, left, left it. Uh, his, oh, no, I just mean he, he was active military. military. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. And Negroponte was never NATSEC advisor, but Scowcroft, right? Al Haig. Al Haig. Okay. So there's this precedent for it. Um, why don't we first start with, let, let's start with McMaster and then let's talk about the the search that led to McMaster and what that might say about uh, his tenure. Uh, who has some thoughts on? Yeah. So look, um, uh, as we've seen in the past, right, sort of the, the parade of terribles and not so terrible and then the choice emerges. And, and so um, at least part of the reaction is colored just by a, a general sense of relief. Um, you know, that said, there's this is clearly a choice that's being embraced by kind of the mainstream national security and intelligence community saying, you know, this is a this is a good, solid choice. You know, the real question becomes on uh, sort of on what conditions did he accept the job and how is he actually going to do it? Right. So um, clearly this is 
is a sane person. Um, this is not someone who subscribes to some of the sort of more troubling uh, strains of Islamophobia and sort of other stuff that we've seen um, uh, emerging from the White House. Um, and so, you know, the real question in terms of um, whether or not he will be effective is really a question of uh, whether or not he's going to be forced to retain Katie McFarlane as his deputy, either in title or in practice, um, uh, whether or not he's going to be able to disband this sort of shadow NSA, the strategic uh, initiatives group that uh, Bannon has sort of constructed. Um, and so what kind of control he's going to be able to uh, to assert. Um, so to the extent that he comes in and is able to play sort of a, a traditional uh, national security advisor role, um, is able to make those uh, personnel and policy choices, uh, you know, an excellent choice and, um, and certainly uh, rather reassuring, um, uh, you know, deep ties to, to DOD and lots of different parts of sort of the, the relevant stakeholders here. Um, like many of the people who were selected sort of in that vein of, of being reassuring, um, the real test is uh, how exactly does he wield his power within the White House and, and is he able to uh, to stand up to some of those more troubling elements? So I, I would agree with you about that sort of Kremlinology aspect about how things work inside the White House and will he actually have autonomy and influence. But I think there are there's another element, um, which is that, as we already knew, Trump loves a man in uniform. Um, and here's another example of a senior officer or retired senior officer getting a, a senior position in the national security hierarchy. And I think there are sort of dueling reactions among the national security establishment to this. On the one hand, as with Mattis's appointment, there's sort of this sigh of relief, like, oh, thank God, another grown up in the room. Yeah. Um, although, as you point out, it's not clear what room he's in <clears throat> or whether he's allowed to leave it. Um, but I, I think there's also, you know, all the the potential vulnerabilities that we've talked about earlier on the show of having yet another uh, person who comes from a military background, exclusively a military background, um, in a senior civilian, usually civilian national security position. And, you know, the question I would have is whether McMaster knows what he doesn't know and whether he will be able to not just control personnel in his own operation, but will he be able to establish a regular order in national security policymaking where the civilians who have roles to play from the Treasury Department, the Commerce Department, the State Department, um, the intelligence community are able to bring their voices to the table as well. And I think what's encouraging about McMaster is that he, you know, clearly in his LBJ book, in the Vietnam book, you know, wrestles with issues of the relative weight given to political and military considerations in policymaking in that specific instance. Um, and so he's clearly at least somewhat sensitive to it. But, you know, walking the walk is is a little bit different from doing the post facto analysis. And, and I, you know, given the overall weight in the national security establishment of this administration toward the military, and particularly the fact that the leadership seems hostile to the intelligence community, you know, and a good national security advisor is going to have to bend over backwards to be a fair broker and to bring those discounted voices into the room. And that's a tough task. So I would just say uh, the National Security Advisor has two roles, and one of which is mostly under his control, although um, 
you know, he uh, how impaired he will be in that role remains to be seen. I'll talk about that in a second. The other role is actually not in his control. So one, the role that's not in his control is that he's actually, as the title suggests, the principal advisor to the president uh, on national security matters. He does not make national security decisions himself. He's the person who whispers in the president's ear and uh, and tease up decisions for the president to make. You can have the best national security advisor in the world. And if you're uh, not to put not to put too fine a point on it, a freaking nutcase, it might not help your national decision making all that much. Uh, so I think we're going to learn uh, from the rationalization of this process a little bit more about whether Trump is quite as kooky in his uh, in his own national dis- security thinking as we've all had reason and occasion to to, to suspect, or whether a more disciplined uh, set of advisors can help in this regard. On the first point, the first function, look, the national security advisor can do a lot uh, to have a good process. But if he is constantly undermined by a deputy who is, shall we say, a little eccentric and uh, not of the highest uh, caliber, uh, by staff on the National Security Council, I don't mean to dwell on Mr. Gorka, but who is uh, even more eccentric and ideologically extreme, and by people outside the National Security Council uh, bureaucracy like Bannon, who, as Susan points out, has sort of running a shadow NSC operation, uh, that is, uh, you know, you could really still have dramatic uh, interruptions in the process that even a very good national security advisor wants to run at that point. And so I think it's, look, it's a dramatic improvement over Flynn. Um, it's a, it's a, on the merits, it's one of the best appointments the president has made in any sphere. Uh, and whether he will be enabled in doing an effective job uh, is very much uh, remains to be seen. And I think the key initial test of it will be uh, what happens to KT McFarlane. So that's a, a great point, Ben. And on that, I think it's probably worth going back and just briefly uh, recapping what happened in the past week since we recorded the podcast and the, we first began with Mike Flynn's death watch on day one. And <laughs> that brief for about Michael 12 hours. Um, but I think it reveals a lot about what McMaster is stepping into. And frankly, the, the, I think the chaos of it and a lot of the uncertainty. So Flynn submits his letter of resignation. Uh, we find out then that Trump says that he fired him because he uh, had misled the vice president. Trump later in a press conference says, yes, I did that, but he was Flynn was very very unfairly by the media and also by the intelligence community that seems to be leaking about him. So it's not clear whether he was fired because Trump felt he had to let him go or because he'd actually misled people. Um, and then Bob Harward emerges, a retired uh, vice admiral, as the leading candidate. It seems like he's possibly going to take the job. Everyone's ready. Then, oh, no, just kidding. Uh, he doesn't take the job. Uh, after thinking about it for a while, reportedly because of his own financial issues, he was making a lot of money at Lockheed Martin, but he couldn't have control over staffing. Uh, so down with that one, another search ensues. 
Up comes now McMaster, and the White House is insisting, no, 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 this time he will have control over staffing, we promise. Oh, and don't forget that in the middle, David Petraeus, another rumored candidate, uh, yes. was quoted publicly at the Munich Security Conference saying, well, anyone who takes this job would need to have control over staffing. Right, which suggests that he either you know couldn't get those assurances if he was even offered the job. That's not clear to me. But clearly his name was floating around. Yeah, maybe he just wanted to take himself out of the running. Right, Who knows? right. So, so there has been this very these conflicting explanations about Flynn being let go. There's obviously the cloud of the Russia investigation still hanging over him, and Democrats in Congress are not. What's that? that oh, though. there's a, there's an issue with Russia. I've forgotten about all about that. Something about Russia and phone calls. <laughs> uh, but but I think that it's it's revealing because I mean, as Susan pointed out in the beginning, this key question of whether he's going to have control over the staff. It sounds like, at least from what the White House is trying to convey, we went from no control over the staff to control over the staff in the span of about forty eight hours. Well, and, and if that's accurate, that's a massive. Shift in thinking, and also, you know, if if you have control over the staff, um, was it with the understanding that you wouldn't dismiss the staff, right? Right, and, control over the staff, except for a, uh-huh. a g- certain group of people that you know are, are, are that you know the president is attached to. Look, but we have a, a relatively obvious sort of uh, test for that, which is that uh, there is no rational mainstream uh, person, uh, including McMaster, who would voluntarily keep KT McFarland as the deputy. Um, this is one of the most difficult, uh, complex, high energy expertise requiring jobs in the entire U.S. national security apparatus. Um, good, good slipping in there of high energy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I'll note that it's very interesting in that regard that when Sean Spicer announced that McMaster was getting the job, in the same tweet, he announced that uh, Kellogg would be staying as chief of staff, Kellogg, who has been acting national security advisor. Chief of staff of the NSC is not typically a very senior level job. It's the person who manages the paper and the process. It's usually a mid-level job. And so the fact that Kellogg is staying on in that role made me think, okay, McFarland's going to keep the deputy title, but Kellogg is going to be doing the deputy job. Yeah, that's a good insight. And, and, and Trump kept saying, in fact, when Trump made the announcement, Kellogg Wright was sitting next to him on the couch with McMaster and said the two of these guys together is going to be a very special team. Yes, see? That's what you would describe as the deputy in the National Security Advisor. Is right. And just, and just to be clear about why we're all obsessing about the deputy role here, the deputy National Security Advisor... <laughs> Uh, has a very specific and important function that uh, people out who sort of haven't, you know, played in federal government waters may not have a sense of, which is that uh, she and both the current and former deputy national security advisors are female, um, run the deputies committee meeting, which is the principal uh, – uh, uh, functioning of the interagency, the, so the deputy, deputy secretary of state, defense, right? All the deputies get together in a room, and the deputy national security advisor presides over that. And you know, in most agencies, the deputy is the person who, on a functional day to day level, runs runs the agency. And so, you know, to have. Uh, a deputies committee meeting supervised by somebody who, you know, we've all heard wacky stories about, um, and some of them are really wacky. And it is fair to say she is not admired, uh, particularly after the previous deputy who was very deeply admired, 
uh, that is a recipe for dysfunction. Right. I mean, look, it, it's the part, it's the deputies committee becomes so incredibly important because it's where those hard decisions are really hashed out. Um, sort of the, 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 the decisions that are, or the options that are presented to the principals and to the president really are sort of, you know, those all the rough edges have been smoothed off, right? And only sort of those really, really key choices get, get made up to the top. And so um, that person's sort of um, intellect and control over the process itself actually has a really important, uh, uh, plays in a really important part in terms of what kinds of options are placed on the president's desk ultimately. Um, and that's why it's such an important role. You know, look, we've seen that Trump um, and sort of the, the Trump team has not been hugely wedded to titles in the past, right? So people who are really sort of obsessed with the selection of Reince Priebus over Bannon for the chief of staff, you know, uh, clearly those are people who are still thinking about the chief of staff being this really particular position. You know, we've seen over the past month that, uh, you know, Trump doesn't care so much who, who has what title. Um, so once again, you know, uh, I, I think that this is an area in which um, sort of the the people who are familiar with the process are, are really going to be focused on that role and 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 what that job is, um, but that the titles just are not necessarily going to match moving forward. You would yeah. like to think that the person in that job uh, has an understanding walking in, at least say that it is a full time job. <laughs> okay, but that that ship has sailed. So yeah. I mean, Cause, I because it is because it's yeah. kind of a deputy full-time. doesn't mean part time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know that I would set up the firing of KT McFarlane as the marker of success or failure for the new national security advisor. I think it's it's going to be more a question of whether this is somebody who can bring the relevant all the range of relevant perspectives to bear on the decisions that are put in front of the president and that that's about regular order more broadly than it is about people. But I will say that if and when Katie McFarlane is let go, she is more than welcome to join us as a guest on Rational Security. Totally. Yeah, because yeah. she's got a lot of experience on yeah. broadcast. 33 days of experience in government. <laughs> broadcasting. <laughs> no, no, no. She's, she's, she'd be cool. She'd be fun to have on the show. Okay, let's move on to the story that we all really want to talk about now. Uh Kim Jong-nam, the estranged half-brother of North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un, murdered in a Malaysian airport, reportedly by two women wearing LOL t-shirts. I think just one was wearing the LOL One was wearing an LOL t-shirt? Yeah. The okay, other one so wasn't, wasn't like laughing. The other one was not laughing. She might have been Out on the Out loud inside. or otherwise. <laughs> With uh, poison needles. Uh, a man has been arrested. A man named Ri Jong Chol reportedly has been arrested. Uh, we don't have too many more details, I think, on that at this point uh, in connection with it. Um, this is this is seriously like something out of like John Cutlockeray meets Quentin Tarantino. It's just wild, spectacular. It, it's I mean, more not, not Tarantino than Le Carre. Right. It, it is just nutty. And, and, and Susan, you've been following some of the details about this. What's you know, what's what's sort of the what do we know at this point about this this the scene in the Malaysian airport. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is um, is just utterly bizarre, made even more bizarre by the spectacle of actually the closed-circuit TV footage has now been released, so you can actually watch it happen. Um, uh, and it is, it's sort of, it's it's Tarantino-esque, this sort of weird, you know, these women come up and, uh, you know, maybe stuck him with a syringe, wiped poison on his face. Uh, you know, just a, an incredibly sort of bizarre uh, thing. Uh, lots of speculation that this was directed by the North Koreans, although um, they are denying uh, the allegation. Uh, the Brotherhood lived in exile in Malaysia, um, uh, sort of the, the older sibling um, presumed successor or heir until uh, I think he tried to enter Japan on a fake passport and his father had sort of sidelined him over, over that episode. He had to go to Disney World, as I recall. 
Excellent. Worth it. Totally. <laughs> it. Um, yeah, so, so this is, um, uh, it's interesting for a, a couple of reasons. One, you know, it's interesting sort of, um, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un's, uh, you know, sort of ruthless uh, uh, treatment of his various family members. You know, I think he's killed uncles and, um, you know, all kinds of, of challengers at this point. So yet another uh, uh, example, a, a colorful execution of his political <clears throat> opponents. Um, the other is that it occurred uh, in such a, a public and brazen way. And so um, how exactly that's going to blow back on the on the Chinese and what that's going to do for the China-North Korea relationship. Um, so for a long time, uh, China has sort of been uh, propping up uh, North Korea, taking sort of a, a lot of um, a responsibility, right, shielding them from, from human rights abuses. And um, uh, at the same time, um, North Korea has gone a, a little bit rogue on, on the Chinese, that they've ignored sort of Chinese warnings about, um, uh, you know, not getting overly aggressive on their nuclear or ballistic missile programs. Um, uh, there was a significant amount of tension that occurred uh, after uh, North Korean uh, uh, hacks of, of Sony, right? So sort of um, reaching out into the United States. There was a little bit of a sense in, in China that, hey, you know, this is, you've become more trouble than you're worth at this point. Um, and so that that relationship is already uh, in a relatively uh, uh, stressful uh, position. And so uh, sort of each time there's a new episode of um, sort of North Korea getting lots and lots of international attention and lots of international criticism, um, once again, we hear uh, sort of calls for, hey, maybe this is the breaking point in terms of the relationship between China and North Korea moving forward. This is going to be the thing that China finally says, you know, forget it, we're cutting you loose, um, you know, remains to be seen. But I think that's kind of the most, all the all the bizarre spectacle aside, that's actually the most sort of important or interesting foreign policy uh, element of it. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical that this would be the the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of Chinese willingness to um, to give the North Koreans a little scope in the international community and to deflect some international pressure on North Korea. North Korea is just such useful leverage for the Chinese internationally. Um, but I do think it's I do think the public setting and the third country setting for this are important, particularly at a moment when China sees opportunity um, because of relative disarray or relative <clears throat> disinterest from the United States to expand its own influence in uh, in East Asia and in Southeast Asia and, uh, and, you know, to have this happen in Malaysia in an airport with all of the implications that has for um, international exchange, for trade and tourism, you know, it, it might present a little bit more of a challenge. But I suspect this is a, you know, this is something that um, serves the North Korean leader in that it adds to his prestige and his sort of dominance factor. Um, and while it may upset the Chinese a little bit, it's an isolated incident. He's probably not going to go around assassinating all kinds of people in all kinds of international airports. And so Probably I doubt not it's, Mexico City. Yeah, 80%. Shane, don't don't worry. Eighty percent. It's not going to happen in Mexico City. Um, and you know, but if you see that T-shirt, I I think that's really the marker right there. But I, I just don't it. think this is going to disrupt the relationship that much. Well, but didn't the Chinese uh, in the immediate aftermath of it uh, suspend coal imports from from North Korea? <laughs> Okay, I mean that's that's, that's pretty low cost. Well, it, it, it's low, but it's not low cost to the North Koreans. I mean, the North Koreans, a huge percentage of their economy is uh, based on 
natural resource exports to China, which accounts for China, I think accounts for 90% of their foreign trade or something. And so, I, I mean, I think if you imagine that this reflects uh, Chinese impatience and that China is uh, starting to use uh, resource uh, um, delivery uh, to the North Koreans and imports from the North Koreans uh, as a lever, that's a potentially very significant thing. Now, I don't know if that's related primarily to the missile launch or whether it's related to this or whether it's related to just a sort of growing sense that Kim Jong-un needs to be uh, swatted down a few pegs and sort of like what the, what the motivation behind the Chinese action was is is a little bit opaque to me but i but i do think it's something to watch i also i mean i wonder whether even if that's the case ben if the united states is in a position to take advantage of that i and i guess i'm very skeptical of that i wonder too well could 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 they do it this way i mean insofar as and this may be an area where president trump kind of has an ability to play sides off of each other but obviously he wants to curtail the ballistic missile program we had you know the spectacle of them finding out at mar-a-lago that the launch had happened and but you know but those sort of you know kind of overtly kind of bumbling responses aside clearly you know it's the policy of his administration to stop north korea from developing a weapon president obama conveyed the seriousness of this to him uh in their private meeting in the oval office before the inauguration I mean, Trump is looking for ways to make deals with China. And if one way they can do that is by kind of going in together against North Korea, I mean, don't we think that he would take that avenue? I I think he would, but I think Obama would have too. And I think there's, you know, there's, and Bush would have before that. I mean, I'm not sure why the opportunity for cooperation with China on North Korea is better today than it was. two years ago, or for that matter, during Bill Clinton's term, right? I mean, successive presidents have faced the same incentive structure uh, uh, as this one has, uh, does now, and all of them have better decision-making processes than the current one does. So I'm just not, I'm not sure I understand what the opportunity that presents for Trump that didn't present for the previous ones, unless... Uh, he's facing uh, increased Chinese impatience mm-hmm. that the others were not. But I, I think it's more than than sort of just Chinese impatience because, of course, one of the things that has changed, uh, the sort of the facts on the ground that have changed is uh, since, you know, the Clinton and, and even uh, sort of later in the Obama presidency is that North Korea actually has moved further towards actually achieving uh, nuclear capabilities or, or ICMBs, right? They're getting, um, uh, they're becoming more threatening in reality to the rest of the world. Um, this does increase pressure on, on China. Um, it it makes it um, as that threat becomes uh, more realistic. I think I think it's you know it's it's reasonable to wonder whether or not uh, Chinese leadership is is viewing is going to start viewing pressure from both sides, not just the international community, but also internally. You know, uh, uh, five hundred thousand Chinese soldiers uh, died defending North Korea in the Korean War. Um, you know, there are uh, there is still historical memory about the very very real costs of sort of going too far in on, on that particular relationship and, and the way that there can be really significant blowback. 
as sort of North Korea takes steps that that raise the specter of a potentially real conflict or really serious international response, I, I do think China may start to uh, feel quite differently. And it's not just a matter of sort of North Korea testing their patience, but also their own political pressure uh, and the pressure of the international community. You know, I'll just put a marker down on one thing a little bit to the side of, of the North Korea issue or maybe something that, that the North Korea issue illustrates, which is... You know, there's been a lot of kind of flailing on the liberal side of the of the national security spectrum about how Trump doesn't understand global interdependence, doesn't understand the need for multilateralism in confronting uh, global challenges. And they often talk about disease or climate change or migration. But I actually think it may be the missile threat. Uh, that is going to compel some hard lesson learning um, by President Trump about the value of multilateral cooperation, because we've got the North Koreans, we've got the Iranians, and now we have the deployment of this Russian system. Um, and it's quite clear that this is, you know, that there's no unilateral American response to uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. <laughs> um, it's something that requires cooperation with a lot of countries. And it's something that if, you know, if done smartly enables you to bring together countries that may be your adversaries on other security issues, or at least, you know, your rivals on other security issues, but who share that concern about, um, about the missile threat. So, you know, I'll, maybe we'll, maybe we will see that evolution in the Trump administration's thinking we can hope so. Uh, let's move on to our third topic. So Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was in Washington last week for a joint press conference and a meeting with President Trump. Uh, obviously, two guys who have known each other for a while, but this is the first time that they've appeared together uh, in their official capacity. Um, we can talk about what some of the things that came out of that press conference and some of the things that President Trump said. But um, tomorrow, why don't you start us off by talking about what Netanyahu is dealing with at home right now? Because... You know, we think that Donald Trump's got problems with investigations and clouds about Russians over his head. Um, <clears throat> Bibi's in not such uh, calm waters either. Oh, my goodness. You know, y you got a feel for Netanyahu a little bit. He's been in. Nah. <laughs> he's been in the prime minister's chair the second go round since 2009. And he's been waiting the whole time for a Republican president who is going to, you know, relieve him from pressure to make compromises with the Palestinians. And he finally gets him. And now Netanyahu may be facing the fight of his political life because he is subject to not one, not two, not three, but four uh, police investigations in different cases. We don't know anything about the fourth, although we know that it exists uh, from news reporting in Israel. But the other three are are each interesting and different and special in their own way. Uh, one case um, alleges that Netanyahu and his wife and his son received extravagant gifts of champagne and cigars uh, from a Hollywood mogul. Uh, and uh, Netanyahu questioned about this, said he had he just had no idea that there was so much or that it was so valuable. Which makes, you, up. which makes you wonder, like, who was smoking these cigars with Sarah <laughs> Netanyahu downing all these cigars? There is also an investigation um, uh, which has been just incredibly dramatic with uh, recorded phone calls uh, between Netanyahu himself and the publisher of Yediota Hronot, which until some a few years ago was Israel's leading paper. Uh, and 
in these phone calls, the publisher and Netanyahu are discussing a quid pro quo whereby Netanyahu, who is also the communications minister, would use his authority to uh, reduce the um, the market share of a free newspaper, Yisrael Hayom, and uh, to help Yediot Achronot get its uh, market share back. And in return, Yediot would provide favorable coverage of the prime minister. And, and just to be clear, Israel Hayom is a publication, a free publication that is set up to promote Bibi. Right. So um, then so he could have two favorable newspapers. Or, or he would even <laughs> sort of scuttle the paper that was created to advance him if Yidiot would become right. the paper that was... It also makes no pretense about being that paper, right? And people just read it to see what basically what... Some Yahoo's people call thinking. it Bibi Hayom. I mean, yeah. it's, right. it's, a, it's a... So there... So, and these conversations are incredibly explicit. They talk about specific reporters and columnists who have to be muzzled and were hired. Or, it's uh, And these have been played on primetime Israeli TV. So the whole country has gotten to listen to them. And then the third investigation that we know the details about is on an entirely different subject, which is whether Netanyahu basically threw a, a contract for new submarines for the Israeli Navy to Germany, to a particular company in Germany, and whether he did that over the objections of the defense establishment and the then defense minister, Bogi Yaalon, who was essentially canned by Netanyahu. So it's uh, each of these three, uh, you know, any one of them in and of themselves is a significant scandal, but the combination of the three is irresistible. You see the knives out in Israel, and all of this meant that Netanyahu's visit to Washington, the warm embrace of uh, of Donald Trump was exactly the distraction that he needed. Um, but somehow after Netanyahu's bitter, bitter time with Obama, the idea that demonstrating he's shoulder to shoulder with the United States is enough to, you know, uh, help him survive this political firestorm at home. I just don't think it sells the way it used to. Do you think that explains sort of the shift in the administration's policy and then the shift again, right? So we have, um, right, the the historic, you know, sort of position on the two-state solution. And then all of a sudden we have Trump saying maybe maybe a two, maybe there's alternatives to the two-state solution. Then we have Nikki Haley saying we're committed to the two-state solution and where the hell is Rex Tillerson? <laughs> right? Is this is this where because in the world is Rex Tillerson? <laughs> this is actually a, 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 very a worthy good question. question. We, we should ask for every a week on the podcast. <laughs> right. So is this? I mean, is this sort of shift? Is it because Trump hasn't made up his mind about the policy? Is it? Is it just sort of what we're seeing is like his careless rhetoric if he just says whatever he wants to? Or is it because this partner um, maybe is not going to be his partner for much longer, and so he's hmm. he's sort of gaming out the alternatives? Trump is gaming out the alternatives or Netanyahu is being, gaming out the alternatives? The Trump is gaming out the alternatives. Oh, that he's thinking maybe whoever replaces Netanyahu will not be a two-stater and yeah. so he should have the door open. I, I, but, I, but then he the returns idea, to think, embrace the two-state again. So it's sort of – it's he's really no, creating lots of uncertainty. You're giving Trump way too much credit here that, he, that, that, that he's playing <laughs> a months in advance – post BB chess match where he's where <laughs> oh, no, he's no. imagining the regime that comes after BB no way this is Trump shooting from the hip um uh as he has done about every foreign policy issue uh 
Like he uh, didn't know, know what the two states one China, was, right? two China, <laughs> five know. or six Chinas. The president <laughs> in Taiwan. Under. I love Pakistan. I love the Pakistanis are great in conversations with the Pakistani prime uh, president. I mean, I don't think there's any reason to read anything into that, but Trump being Trump. Well, okay. I'm I'm going to add a little bit of I I don't think the explanation is as you suggest, Susan, but I do think that Israeli domestic politics plays a role here because you know, any any briefing he might have gotten even the 32nd version would include the fact that many of Netanyahu's coalition partners are not two staters. Um and it was reported in the Israeli press that before Netanyahu left for Washington, his major coalition partner, Naftali Bennett of the Jewish Home Party, essentially warned him or threatened him, if there is any discussion of a Palestinian state in Washington, I'm bringing down the government. And so you will notice that whatever crazy stuff Trump may have said, Netanyahu did not mention a Palestinian state. He did not mention two states. And if, you know, if Netanyahu or any of his staff prepping the visit explained to the American side this uh, this domestic political complication, then maybe that's what was reflected in Trump's remarks. Just some sort of, oh, I, I recognize you don't want to get pushed on two states. So I'll say two states, one state, whatever you want. But, you know, so if- this this brings me to my favorite Bibi Netanyahu joke which I think if I miss this opportunity to tell on rational security, I will be punished in the next life. So uh, God decides he's going to end the world and he tells three people. He tells uh, uh, Donald Trump, uh, he tells Vladimir Putin, and he tells Bibi Netanyahu. And Donald Trump uh, calls in Steve Bannon to his office and says, uh, Steve, I got good news and bad news for you. The good news is there really is a God. You know, the premise of our fight against the communists was right. There really is a God. The bad news is he's going to end the world tomorrow. And Putin calls in uh, Sergei Lavrov and he says, Sergei, I've got bad news and bad news. The bad news is, you know, the pr- the, the premise of our fight against the, the West was wrong. There really is a God. We, we were wrong the whole Soviet era. And the further bad news is not only is there is a, is a God, he's going to end the world tomorrow. And Bibi calls in Naftali Bennett and he says, Naftali, I've got good news and good news. The first good news is that the millennial struggle of the Jewish people is vindicated. There really is a God. And the further good news is after tomorrow, we will not have to worry about a Palestinian state. (laughs) Oh, Oh, nothing like some dark humor to get you through the tough times. Through these times. Through these times. All right. um, Why don't we move on to object lessons? Um, Does anybody particularly want to go first? I I can go. You want to go first? Um, So, you know, we were talking earlier about H.R. McMaster and um, one of the one of the elements of the lore surrounding H.R. McMaster as a, an intellectual um, military strategist is this reading list that he put together a few years ago in an interview with, I think, McKinsey. Um, and he's, you know, essential reads for professionals involved in military affairs. And Tom Ricks uh, wrote about it at the time. And over the weekend, uh, on the news of McMaster's appointment, you know, um, was tweeting about this reading list. And 
Uh, it was noted to Tom that this reading list is exclusively male uh, and <coughs> almost entirely Western uh, in, ter- in terms of the authors of the books and the perspectives on military strategy. Now, given that we're talking about military strategy, it may be not entirely surprising that it is male-dominated. Um, but in any event, uh, Tom is interested, and I'm very interested in uh, adding to this list uh, some perspectives that may bring um, a little diversity, both in terms of uh, the identity of the authors and uh, and the history and culture uh, that's brought to bear on on this very very rich subject. So, I'm calling on readers or listeners to submit your nominations. Tweet at Rational Security R A T L Security uh, your favorite female and or non-Western uh, security studies books. And I promise I will share them with Tom Rex. Nice. Uh, <clears throat> so I'll do my object next. Um, one of the great things about writing for the Wall Street Journal is so many people read my work. One of the other great things is so many people like to write in to tell me what they thought of my work. Mm-hmm. You know, we put we print our email address at the bottom of uh, uh, of our articles. Your which is actual very actual email, yeah, our work email address. Wow, yeah, it's there. So I probably received um, last week in response to one story I wrote. I'm going to guess about 50 emails of people demanding to know, not demanding to know, but demanding that I not refer to Donald Trump as Mr. Trump on second reference, as we call it in journalism, but as President Trump. Uh, and I, I just thought this was fat. I'll just share a couple of them. Uh, that are representative. Um, Part of the reason President Trump has problems with the media shows in your biased writing, you refer to the president as Mr. Trump. You show no respect for the office or President Trump. No one media ever referred to President Obama as Mr. Obama, as they should not. You sound like a sore loser. (laughs) Another one, um, F you, another Mm -hmm. liberal a-hole, as you all are. He is President Trump, not Mr. Trump. Obama's destroyed the country and all of you in the lamestream media. (laughs) Another one, subject line, respect, question mark. Hello, Shane. It's President Trump, not Mr. Um, and the Chicago Manual of Style wept. <laughs> right. So since I was not able to respond to all 50 of these readers, let me just say uh, it is not a sign of respect or disrespect. On second reference, the president is always referred to as Mr. Senators are referred to as Mr. Members of Congress are referred to as Mr. Uh, I am certain that President Obama was called Mr. Obama. Uh, but I just thought and, was, and that's the Wall Street Journal style. That's the right? Wall Street Journal style. It is also, I believe, the New York Times style. Uh, the Washington Post, you'll just refer seeing them referred to as Trump or the president. But I was more more struck by just first of all these came all in one day so i don't know if something was happening it's in social orchestrated media orchestrated campaign right exactly but i found that it very interesting that people were reacting to journalistic style as somehow a journalistic position as if we were trying to demean the office of the presidency by calling him mr and not president i'm not sure what to make of it it was notable and i'll be honest it was rather unsettling to me so when i i, I when we were at when I was at the Washington Post editorial page, uh, we used to get complaints sometimes because we would always refer to the president and everybody else as Mr. or Ms. So-and-so. Uh, and we would get complaints in the actually the opposite direction, that it was too arch and too formal and that we should, you know, just say, you know, Bush or, or, or uh, Clinton uh, and that there was something too, 
too formal about saying Mr. Bush, Mr. Um, and so it's interesting that now it's sort of flipped the other way and it's considered a sign of disrespect to not be even more formal than that and use the actual title. Yeah. And to be clear, I'm pretty sure these were mostly supporters of the president. Yeah. I mean, I, look, I think it does just sort of reveal that um, that people are bringing their own uh, sensibilities about how to consume media. And now we're seeing a level of sort of uh, suspicion or hostility that um, oh, yeah. uh, is necessarily new. Um, I also get lots and lots of feedback for my public work. Um, uh, some is uh, more pleasant than others. Although uh, one gentleman did write on Facebook, um, giving Ben and I the greatest and now uh, go-to lawfare insult, um, which is after a PBS News Hour saying, your arms are fat. So now, which, by the way, readers... This is really the most essential quality of the National Security Analyst. I I should pull it out as my my subsidiary object lesson, because he said it twice. There was just sort of a lyrical elegance to the way he said this. So now anytime anybody, uh, you know, disagrees with me on lawfare editorial decisions, I just respond with, well, your arms are fat. Right. Can, and, and for those of you who've never seen Susan's arms on on uh, on on the news hour, she uh, can pick up a toddler. Imagine or, like, like Michelle that. Obama with like a you know only white. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not and not the first lady. And not, not the first lady. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like the best. You got pipes like is what we're saying. Arms. Yeah. Susan's got good strong arms. arms. Right? Yeah. 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 Dude. All right, Ben. What's your object? So my object lesson I actually can't talk about. I'm just going to tell you what it is and then tell you why I can't talk about it. I, I just before as as we the others entered the jungle studio uh, to record rational security, I printed some postage uh, using a service. Um, and I'm not going to tell don't, you yeah, what service it, it was. Don't say it. And I'm not going to tell you uh, anything about uh, my experience with it because – that service does not sponsor rational security. And so my object lesson is, you know, it's what could have been mm-hmm. for a certain uh, for a certain company. It's package efficiently covered and postage. You know, and and exp- and instead I'm just gonna make fun of, of, of them. So if you're if you work for stamps.com right now, <laughs> <laughs> Also, please sponsor our podcast. (laughs) Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security, which is not sponsored by Stamps.com, is, of course, a Spaghetti on the Wall production. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWall.com. Wait, is it SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com? Yeah, it's SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You would think that I would know our own website by now. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security, and please make sure to send tomorrow ideas for Tom Ricks's reading list. I think that's going to be really interesting. Uh, When you download the podcast, make sure you leave us a review and a rating. It really helps others find it. And we are a word of mouth, so please do let people know on social media. Run your mouth, Just like Mike Pesca shouted from the rooftops. We really appreciate Appreciate all of that. Our audio engineer is Quentin Dressick. The show is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Katie McFarland and the Lowell Brigade. Excellent. You can totally see her leading like a band of people like in yeah. an airport, right? Yeah. 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 Katie McFarland would make an awesome assassin. Oh, man. That's a terrifying thought. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine that? her leading a band of deputies of the National Security Establishment, but I can totally imagine her leading a band like an actual Totally. Yeah, it's not that she's in the wrong. She's just in the wrong job. That's all. Got other things for her. Uh, on behalf of my friends Ben Wittis, Tamar Kaufman Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 